Hello and welcome to Wangaratta Baptist Church. My name is Pastor Aaron. I'm so thrilled that you've decided to join with us today for this message. This message was recorded live at one of our Sunday morning services, which are on every Sunday at 10 a.m. right here in Wangaratta. If you're here uh, in town on a Sunday, then why not come along and join with us in fellowship with other believers as we open the word together and hear from the scriptures. But if you are connecting with us online, don't let this replace uh, coming to a, a local church. Uh, they are vitally important for the growth of all believers. And so get along to your local church. But if not, then, then at least help. let this be a supplement to help you in your walk with the Lord. And so we do believe that the, the scriptures are the inerrant word of God and they're here to train us and equip us. And so we will be speaking and opening up the scriptures together. So, so get your Bibles out and follow along. And I trust that this message that you are watching today will really encourage you and inspire you and help you understand the hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. May it be a blessing to you. I know people say this all the time, but it is a privilege to stand up and to share the message of Christmas once again. And I... I've done this a few times and it strikes me that Christmas is one of the hardest times to preach at. It really is. And I really feel for Aaron for the next couple of weeks and all pastors who, who face this time of year. It's a wonderful time. It's a celebration I absolutely love. I adore Christmas. Anyone else really get into Christmas? Yeah, I think it's a fabulous time. But let's, for comparison, when you look at how the Bible treats Christmas, in the Gospels, fully one-third of the Gospels are concentrated around the last week of Jesus' life to do with Easter. But when you come to Christmas, it is only mentioned in two Gospels. It takes a total of 37 verses out of the 3,779 verses found in the Gospels, which means that it takes up fully 0.9% of the whole story of Jesus, which means it's a well-known story, no, let's take that out. It's a well-known narrative because it's not a story, it's a history. It's a really well-known one. And people hear it year in and year out. And yet, each year we come to hear a message about it, about something that should be familiar. And Christmas itself, like Easter, contains some of those really important facts, but some of those difficult ones for people to accept in the broader world around us. So my aim today is simple. I want to look at Christmas objectively. And then when I say Christmas, I actually mean the night of Jesus' birth. I want to look at that objectively, the lead up to it, and what are, what are the facts, how does it sit historically, and what are the myths that we talk about so often. So for example, you know, one of the myths we do often talk about is that history is divided into two halves, around about that year zero beast, year, year zero, which is supposedly when Jesus was born. But um, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic priest who did the calculations back in about the third or fourth century, century did a wonderful job theologically, but he missed by about three or four years. Um, Jesus was actually born somewhere between 6 BC and 1 BC, probably around about that 3 BC mark. So yeah, we're out by a few years actually on zero for that one. Before we do that, let's pray. And then we'll start looking at the historic Christmas. So, Father, we thank you that you broke into our world as a child 
all those years ago. And that, Father, that was a fulfilment of a promise that you made to us, that we would see your light and your salvation. And we thank you it is now a time of celebration, but we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, that your spirit would speak truth to us and we'd be able to discern what is right and what is mere. And that through it, Father, we come closer to you as we worship what is truly Jesus and who is truly Jesus. Father, stir our hearts and bring us, Lord, a greater vision of who you are and who Jesus is. And Lord, let us worship you in truth as well as in spirit. Amen. So I'm going to take the liberty of reading the two accounts of, that we have of the birth of Jesus, the 37 verses. The first one, of course, is found in the first gospel, Matthew, and it reads this from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And then the Luke version, which is Luke chapter 2, says this. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he, was, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Saviour, who is the Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, peace to those on, with whom he's pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And then a little bit later it says here, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he's called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought up him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens, first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And I've mentioned that because it's important in the later part of our narrative. So what we see here is we've got two independent narratives of the same event from two different points of view recorded by our two gospel writers. We have Luke the doctor's account and we have Matthew's account there. And they are from two um, very different views. You might note that one predominantly tells the story from Joseph's side and the other one predominantly seems, um, follows the story of Mary and talks about her perspective of what goes on there. But before we look at those in great detail, what I propose to do is quickly look at the pre-story about eight months earlier, nine months earlier, when we look at the conception of Jesus, which is also recorded in Luke. So what we find in Luke, and I'll just find the right spot. We know the, that at some stage, there was a faithful servant of God I've forgotten his name because I'm bad with names. Zechariah, of course. And he was working in the temple there um, as they did. And an angel appeared to him and pronounced that his wife, who had been barren, was going to have a child. And, of course, he found that so shocking that he questioned it. And as a result, the angel said, well, you're going to be mute until the birth of your son. And when we come to the, and uh, this woman, his wife, Elizabeth, who was pregnant, was a relative of Mary's, who is going to become, of course, the mother of Jesus. And so we start this uh, history about Jesus in the Gospels directly with the conception story, where it starts off with the words, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man called Joseph. Now that six months um, marker is about six months along in, um, in Elizabeth's pregnancy. Okay, so that's how they mark the time there in that particular spot. And we have an angel appearing to this young woman who is betrothed to a man, which was normal practice then, and he makes an announcement to her. And he says, greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she's greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, when it talks about her being betrothed, it talk, um, there's some points that we need to pick up. One, we all know what a virgin is, so I'm not going to go into that in great detail. But what we do know is that they, they, we had the young couple residing in Nazareth, so we've got a place, and the place is important because it fulfills some prophecy there. We also know that she's betrothed. Now, betrothal in those times was a formal process. So it's rather more than the process where I, I went to Alison one day and said, Alison, will you marry me? And she said, yes, we've got a ring. And then we sort of wait 
with all the planning and things that go on. It is just, that is an informal arrangement where we acknowledge poor people that we're going to marry. The betrothal in um, Jesus' time was much more formalised. So it actually had legal standing. To separate from someone you betrothed to required a legal process which would mean divorce in our terms. It was an expectation that it was um, sort of a proto-marriage, if you like, where all the arrangements were made and they would be formally um, in the betrothal state for something like eight to 12 months. And then at the end of the eight to 12 months, there'd be a great celebration. You remember that there, you had Jesus going to various wedding celebrations. These celebrations, depending upon the wealth of the people involved, might last up to a week. It would involve often the whole village. Um, and it was a very, very big deal. And so we see that um, Mary, in this case, had that standing of being between when the, the, the arrangement had been made for her marriage. And don't forget in those days too, many marriages were, were actually um, pre-arranged. Now, we can speculate around Mary's and Joseph's background a bit because we're not told everything about them. But tradition at the time was that often marriages were brought together around a family arrangement, often for economic or other reasons to go on. It wasn't um, our current love system particularly. And we do know that, um, that the idea was, of course, is that that legal standing would be ended when the woman was taken from her um, household, where gifts would be given, and would end up in the husband's household. It was a removal, and that's what the celebration of the wedding feast was about. So she's in this state, and the angel comes along and says, okay, you are greatly favoured by God. Mary is puzzled by this because, one, she's a young woman, and we know that the status of women in Israel had a particular difference to the status of women now. She's probably quite young, probably in those teenage years. Um, she might have been up to about 16, 17, 18, something like that. Again, that's based upon cultural expectations of the time. That's not recorded. We don't know her age. It was a smallish town that she lived in, probably four to 800 people, maybe up to 1,000 people, and it's agricultural. So it's not a particularly amazing place. She's not a particularly amazing person. She's not got much money behind her. There's nothing special about him. This angel appears out of nowhere and says, you are greatly favoured. So verse 29 goes on, explains why. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Here is this poor woman in a small town. And God suddenly appeared to her and announced that he is going to fulfill his promise to all nations because her son conceived through the action of God in her body is going to raise up to be the great expected king. Mary's response to this, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She basically says to God, okay, I can't see how that can possibly work. And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you 
Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Because what happened to Elizabeth was proof that God could intervene to make the miraculous happen. And Mary's being told that God will make it happen. You will conceive and have a son despite the fact you're a virgin, and this child will be special. Mary's response, which is a wonderful one, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Now, don't forget, at this stage, that proclaim that proclamation of faith is a dangerous one for her. Yes, adultery back in those times, and this would count as adultery, could be punishable by death. Now, it was very rare. That was a very unlikely outcome, but it could be, particularly with pious Jews and the conservative part of the um, nation. What is more likely, though, is a public hearing, disgrace upon her and her family, and shame is a big thing in that society, and her being removed from that betrothal, sent back to the father, with no future and no hope as a single parent. She'd have no economic future. She'd have no um, very little likelihood of ever being attached to another man and a family and so on. And so her whole future was likely ruined by this proclamation if things went wrong. And yet her proclamation is, let it be as you have said. It's a brave acceptance of what would happen, um, of her um, faith in God and what he could do. Then interestingly, what's the next thing she does? It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judea. And she went and visited Elizabeth, as we know. It is quite possible at this point, because now she's going to conceive, you know, there's no, there's no sign that she's pregnant or anything. And she takes off to Elizabeth. It's quite conceivable, given what we know from uh, Matthew, that Joseph was in the dark that he had no idea that his betrothed was going to have a baby. And we can see this, perhaps, when we go back to Matthew. Because in Matthew, we read about how Joseph, before they came together, we know that means, that um, found out that she was pregnant. Now, it wasn't necessarily the pregnancy was the problem there. But the problem was he knew that child wasn't hers. Oh, his. I should say it's always hers. <laughs> no doubt it's hers, but it's not his. <laughs> right? And when he takes her to his house, he then is accepting her and the child as his legal heir. And he's putting his family's name on the line with that. And when he names the child, he's accepting that child when it comes along to say that this belongs to him and his lineage. Now, don't forget, what we see is that through the genealogy in Matthew, that he is of the line of David, he's a true Jew, and he comes from right back to Moses and Abraham, they can trace him once of the genealogy. And on Mary's side, you see too that she goes through David and so on. 
So the line is there to fulfill the promise that God had made, that he would have a king on the throne of David sometime. And they've been waiting now for 800 years for this to happen. And if you, don't, if you want to understand shame and shame culture, there are accounts from um, some Middle Eastern states now about the royal family. There's a famous book called Princess. And she recounts in there the treatment of certain women in that culture when they're shamed. So one woman for particular, um, she was young, she wasn't married, she went out and met, and she was of the royal family, went out and met white men who were there on business, unaccompanied and unorganised by her family. Because of the shame she brought on the family, this book records that she was actually locked, family found out, locked her in a room and kept her there for, well, the book says, as far as she knew, knows she's still there. C completely in solitary, never to be let out, basically. And the book also records cases of things like honour killings and things like that that go on, about how in this particular place, um, women, when they're born, they're not registered in birth records and so that them disappearing is not officially someone going. So the sh that shame culture in the Middle East is really strong. Now, I'm not saying that the Jewish shame culture is re result in that, but it is important to keep the family name and the family standing. So Matthew records that Joseph thought about this. Was he going to subject Mary to public shame? Was he going to take her to a divorce court, essentially, and divorce her publicly, everyone know? And he said, and it says he was a just man. He had compassion and empathy upon his betrothed. And so he took the decision that he would not do that. Instead, what he would do is quietly divorce her. Just so, um, go through the formal proceedings without anyone else knowing, keeping it under the carpet, and letting her go her own way. A compassionate response, but still one which would leave her as a single mother in, the father's, in her family's house without much future. But God intervened, didn't he? And he intervenes in the most amazing way and says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her is from the Holy Spirit. And um, Joseph responds takes God seriously his word and goes through with the betrothal. And we know they end up being married, although we don't see the actual marriage there. But we do record that it says he knew her not. You read that as we know, because I know we've got children here. She gave birth to a son and he accepted that son because it says he named him Jesus, which means that he made him his legal heir, took him in as his own. Which is amazing. So that's the prehistory. The prehistory to what became Christmas, the first night, eight months beforehand. Now, we talked about Christmas. Let's think about what do you think about when you think about Christmas night? Is this what you see? I'm not getting a response. Is this what you see? <laughs> <laughs> do people think that's because we have things like this in our household and you have those beautiful pictures that come up and all the rest of you. This is what people present Christmas like on the first Christmas. If you think that's what it is, wipe it out. Completely wrong. Right? Nothing like this probably. For a start, it's unlikely there's an angel hiding in the top loft. 
There certainly probably wasn't an angel standing in behind Mary there. Um, if you see those great pictures with the great glows around Mary and Joseph, very unlikely. I don't think many people have halos as they walk around at night, particularly after childbirth. Um, these guys, the Magi, nah, they're not there. You can take them out. Who else is in there that shouldn't be there? Um, the whole architectural design's wrong, by the way. <laughs> so let's look at what, what it would have been. We know that there was a census called, and we know that, they, um, that Mary and Joseph, the, the couple, went from Nazareth through to Bethlehem. Now, this is where I see if I can make this turn on. There's a button that side says on. Ah, that works. All right. And if I point in the right direction. Okay, so up there is a map, just in case people don't know. You see I've marked where Nazareth is and Bethlehem, which is just down by Jerusalem. The actual trip there is about 120 kilometres. Uh, how many people here travel with pregnant women on a trip of an all-day in a car? I have, lots of times. How many people enjoyed that trip immensely? Um, back then, the average travel time between Nazareth and Bethlehem was probably in the region of a weekish, maybe a bit longer. With a pregnant woman, probably stretched out a little bit, particularly if she was feeling unwell or whatever's going on there. Um, I know that I had every t public toilet mapped out between where we lived and where we were going when <laughs> Alison was pregnant. So Mary probably knew most of the palm trees on the way. She would have to take regular stops. But the journey is not an easy one. Um, the actual journey is they would have taken was on that map across to my left down the flatlands of the Jordan River down on the blue bit and then the orange bit and then they'd hook around up and down uplands there and across to um, across to Nazareth the, the dangers they faced are well described in by archaeologists and so on for a start we don't know whether they walked or went by donkey. Um, donkeys, you know, cost a bit and whatnot, but as a carpenter, it might have been um, something Joseph had access to, to carry his tools of trade and so on. I'm never having been a pregnant woman, I'm not sure whether riding on a donkey at nine months is a good thing to do. Um, how, not sure about the comfort levels there. I'm not sure whether I'd choose to walk or ride. What we do know, though, is that the trip is quite hilly. The weather um, through those areas can be hot in the day and freezing cold at night, depending on when they travel, because it's not clear exactly when the first night was. It's not clear. But what we do know is that it can be well over 30 in the day, cold at night. You can have driving rains at various times, and they would have had travel clothing for this. We know that there's an area which is recorded as having been quite hazardous for travellers because of um, thieves and robbers. And Jesus mentioned those in various parables. So to travel, am I moving around too much? So to travel, um, they would have probably joined up with a group of people and travelled with them for safety. There are also the Jordan forests, and there is contemporaneous material there that says the Jordan forests were a dangerous place to be because they're full of bears and there are other predators in that area. And so they would have had to take care about those sort of things and as they moved through. It's a long and arduous journey to get to where they're going. They get to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a small place. I'll give you an idea what it'll look like. Oops. 
There it is. So the bottom picture there is a, I'm actually not sure, it's Bethlehem, it's a picture of a similar sort of town in those hill regions and the way it was um, boxed in. The top picture is of the, uh, the streetscape from one of those typical villages of that era. Um, it was only about six to 800 people, it wasn't big and you have an influx of people in there. So they arrived there and looked for accommodation. Accommodation those times, it wasn't like coming to Wangaratta where you had the choice of motels, right? You don't just turn up and book in and you don't have the internet to pre-book. So you turn up at the town and the tradition was if you had relatives or people you knew in town, they'd put you up for the night. If they weren't there, there were small lodgings sometimes available like a guest room in people's places. And it was likely that was the sort of situation they found themselves in. So they're coming to a small town, hoping to find accommodation and it's booked out essentially. There is no spare rooms with relatives or friends or people they knew and there is no spare guest rooms in people's places they can get to. And so eventually they're, they're taken pity on in a sense and they're given some space where they can stay. Accommodation town, I'll see if that, maybe one of my slides is missing. Maybe my clicker's not clicking either. That's the next one. All right, I've missed a slide there. Oh no, I can see it at the back. You can't see the front, that's why, sorry. Yeah, so what, what the typical house at the time was, was you'd have a, a walled area. I'll try to describe it. Then there's a courtyard. And then you have a two level sort of house bit. The top bit's the living area. One side would be a room where you'd eat and do all the things you're doing. The other side would be a sort of sleeping area and it's roofed. Underneath there's a storage area and a sort of a, a, a walled off area where if they had um, traveling animals or other sort of animals, you know, domestic stock and whatnot, they'd keep it in the area. On the, the part you can see there is one of those storage areas where the animals might be kept overnight. And you can see that there's a little stone trough there, which is essentially a manger, okay? So that's what a, a manger may look like. The other, uh, the other thing, depending on where it is, because Bethlehem's on limestone hills, is it could have been built back into the hill and it could have just been a dugout cave in the back of the house that they are in. And the, the manger then would have been uh, a trough, like a normal water trough dug into the actual um, side of the hill there. So it's not a cradle or, a, or a, anything of that nature. So they arrive there and Mary's near time, as it says, and during the time they're there, she gives birth. Thing is, I make an assumption, if the Bible says something's miraculous, I assume it's miraculous, and if the Bible says it was just, it happened, it just happened, it's normal. So we can pretty much assume that this young woman in this rather strange spot gave birth in the natural way. Now, the natural way back then was that they had midwives. Now, these midwives were part-time helpers, most of them, so that wasn't their first profession, but they would come in and support the woman through the birth process. This is likely what happened there. The father missed out on the joy of being there for the birth, so he missed out on sort of the yells and the screams and the attempted strangulations and all the <laughs> other things that go on. Um, instead, he would just chuff off somewhere and leave them to it. Um, and if it was a normal birth, all is good. Now, don't forget back in those days, there's no pethidine and no gas and nothing like that. It's just natural. There are a few herbs that did not much. 
Um, so Mary would have gone through the normal birthing process, however long it was. Babies delivered and they swaddled the baby. And hopefully, have a picture, yeah, swaddled baby, that's beautiful. So swaddling, there's a custom was done then when the baby's newborn and washed off, they get strips of cloth, wrap the baby up and wrap it tight. Now, some other ideas of swaddling was more like mummification, but it's likely to be more like this, where you just get strips of cloth, tie them up and tie the baby, right, so it doesn't wriggle around so much. They might be kept like that for three, six, eight months, depending. It is actually quite a long process, but it was quite normal culturally for them to do that, just to keep the baby safe, calm in the spot. And they had no other place. They didn't have the porticot. They didn't have anything else they could put Jesus in, so they chose the next most available thing, which is that stone trough, which they put him in. And there he lay. And so, that's where we leave them. As opposed to the Christmas scene here, you've got Mary and Joseph, possibly the midwife hanging around, maybe the couple or the family who let them into their house for the night, or the period, and that's it. And mums, when they give birth, aren't generally sort of standing there serenely looking on. They're generally pretty tired. Dads, are, uh, the firstborn child, just startled. They don't know what they're doing. So they're sort of looking on and wondering what to do for that night. They're obviously often pretty tired. And it would be in a candle-lit or a well-lit, you know, area. Not very much like that. But something else startling happened at the time. And, of course, that's the shepherds. Now, the shepherds, of course, are people looking after animals outside the city wall. They're doing their normal sort of job. Um, what they would have done, and there's a picture of this quickly, is they would have made a brush surround for the animals. The animals would have been there. They sit around um, through the night with some fires, keeping company and looking out for bears and other things coming to eat their sheep. Their job is to protect them, right? And suddenly, angelic hosts just appear. Well, an angel appears and says something really, really significant. He talks about there being peace among those with whom God is pleased. And this is what this is about. And I think, I don't know if Aaron will talk about this next week on the significance. He might. I'm not going to go into that. But they're just startled. And, of course, once the heavenly array goes, you know, one angel's scary enough. Do you notice every time an angel turns up, they say, don't be afraid? <laughs> well, if one angel says, don't be afraid, if the whole heavenly host goes up there, you can imagine what it's like. This is going to grab your attention. It's going to make you think. And it's interesting that people have um, real encounters with God have real reactions to it. And these, these shepherds could not ignore this message. And it's strange, isn't it? that the one who's going to be the king of the world and the Lord of Lords has such a quiet reception in the world. And the ones that, um, Jesus, that God announces to a couple of you know, a group of shepherds, we don't know how many, sitting out in the paddock. It's not even to the great rulers or anything else. He just chose these people and they go into the town because it's nearby. And what they find? You see, they're given a sign and it... You know, if you're going into town looking for a baby swaddling cloth, you'd likely find a few of them. But the difference was he was in the manger. And that was unusual. So they found this child in the manger and they worshipped him. 
because they recognise that this is the fulfilment of that. And that's the thing that's marked out Jesus' birth in here. He was in the manger. That's how they could find him. The Magi, which you hear about, the astrologers which came from the east, and I won't touch on them too much, they're actually priests or astrologers from Persia. But it says, and we have this whole thing about them coming through and talking to Herod's court, right? And Herod was a bit upset about this because he was actually not an Israelite. He was an Edomite. He came from another place. The Romans put him in charge. Israel wasn't too pleased about that, so he would have been worried about being overthrown. Well, they arrived sometime later because it actually says they came and visited Mary and Joseph in their house, in a house. So it seems like what's happened is you've got the birth of Jesus, you've got the shepherds coming, you've got the eight days of purification Mary goes through, you've got them doing the purification. In the meantime, they've found some other lodgings and then the Magi come after that. So they don't turn up for, you know, probably a week, two, three, four, maybe a couple of months after Jesus has been born. And we also know this because of that terrible slaughter done on the children um, that they record. That's another story. But what we do know, what we do know is the last part of this narrative is that Joseph and Mary were pious people. Because the Old Testament, and if you can look up in Leviticus and you look up in Exodus, says that when you have your firstborn child, you have to dedicate them to God. And that if you have a son, you wait eight days to be purified, the woman waits eight days, to, seven days to be purified, and then they present themselves to the temple and make a sacrifice. And it says that the sacrifice should be a newborn lamb unless you're too poor. And then you give a couple of pigeons. So they went and they fulfilled the duty they had under the law by making that sacrifice and showing that they actually had a real faith and hope in God. But this was a poor couple that did this. And this is a couple that um, are unexpected. If you were to look at God's way of dealing with the world, he often does the unexpected. This would be an unexpected couple to put into this amazing situation. So that's very briefly, a historic picture of that first Christmas for you. It took place in a small town. And except for the conception, it happened in a normal way, in a small occupied territory of the Roman Empire at the time. There wasn't much fanfare. There wasn't much going on except for those angels appearing to the shepherds who turned up. There are a few astrologers turned up a little bit later who caused a bit of a stir. But you know, it records in the Bible that Mary, it says very often, Mary kept these things to herself and pondered them in her heart. And there is actually no record in the Bible that suggests that at that time, people had suspected Jesus' birth was something that took place in Bethlehem. Because if you think about it, it's called Jesus of Nazareth. And the history of the virgin birth doesn't seem to come out until the Gospels have come out. And then 
some of the questions came with that that people do have. But as was said last week, Jesus instituted two celebrations about himself when he came. And that was communion and baptism. Christmas was never actually put on the celebratory calendar for us. And yet here we are celebrating it. And it's good. Because that first night, of course, was the curtain raiser for a 33-year 33, 33 prelude to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, of course, there can be no Easter without Christmas. It had to have Christmas to bed Easter. Now, whatever message you get from Christmas, and there are lots, and we can talk about the peace that God can give or the hope or the fulfilment of the promise. We can talk about Jesus himself and whatnot. But whatever we bring to Christmas, it's one, good to celebrate the real thing. But even more than that, what's important for us is to celebrate the central part of Christmas, and we know that. That's Jesus. So rather than getting caught up in the great things, the feasts, the feasting, the gathering, and let's face it, God made celebrations. He's the one who invented them, didn't he? He's the one who wants us to joyously gather, and it talks about that in the Bible too. So, yes, enjoy those things. But the thing is, is that the, at Christmas, the true response to Jesus was that of the shepherds when they worshipped him and glorified God. So in our feasting, family, gifting, and all those other things, let's keep the focus where it belongs. We're doing those not because they're fun, but because God chose to call us so we could worship and glorify him. And that makes Christmas special, doesn't it? So there you are. Christmas as it historically was. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much you sent Jesus, and I thank you there is a Christmas story. And I thank you, Lord, that's rooted in history and that is real. Just stir in us, Lord, a spirit of celebration which honours that, we pray. Amen.